Hey listeners, this is Tang here with the Epic Meta Podcast. Just a quick, quick uh, announcement before we start the show. Uh, we had a lot of technical uh, difficulties during the recording of the show. Uh, there was a lot of um, microphone and <laughs> on my side, a lot of uh, adjustment. So please bear with us if you hear any kind of sound discrepancy, any kind of conversation overlap, any kind of stop and go moments or, you know, it just didn't sync quite right. Uh, I did my best, so hopefully you can still enjoy it um, as one normal conversation episode that we normally would have. All right, here we go. Hey, hey, welcome to another episode of the Epic Meta Podcast. Tang, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. I'm on my third cup of coffee, so I'm very good. <laughs> yeah, I think it's... How about you? It's at, it's at least two and a half for me. I, I tend to refill halfway sometimes, so. Yeah, yeah. So I'm more awake than um, the normal schedule where I wake up late and rush. Uh, so it's uh, it's good. It's good. Mm. How about you? You're doing good too, right? Yeah, I've <laughs> been up since five. Day, wow, day, why? Uh, well, it's day 12 of my 21-day uh, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. morning you're trying to... chant. <laughs> <laughs> How's it going so far, like generally? Oh, it's positive, a, negative. Yeah, it's awesome. It um, the chant I do is is a um, is a I believe it's Tibetan, um, but it has to do mm. with perfect. It, the idea behind it is is perfecting the self. So, wow, we might have to do an episode on all this whole thing when you're when you're done with it because I'm kind of curious. What's the difference between waking up early? And then waking up early and, you know, doing your specific program, right? Because um, well, there's a lot of, pro like, people just wake up early, go work out, and they, they like, swear to it. Hmm. You know, tons of videos and information out there about that kind of stuff. But, um, you know, the delineation between your program versus the rest will be a cool topic to explore. Sure. Yeah. Let's put that on the calendar. <laughs> <laughs> so the audience might be wondering why I opened the podcast today, whereas Tang usually does it. And, um, you know, that's a, that's a good question, audience. I appreciate you asking that. Um, the reason is because this episode I will be interviewing Tang. And uh, the reason why I'm interviewing Tang is uh, there's been a lot of clamoring out there from our audience to learn more about us. Um, Actually, my sister was interested in in knowing more about your story, so um, that's what we're doing today. Are you up for a ten? Sure, fantastic. Plus episode planning, so it works out <laughs> on your side. Oh. <laughs> okay, so why don't we get started? Oh, I forgot to switch my chair. I'll try not to creak it. Um, okay, so. Tell me a little bit, bit about yourself. Um, how old are you, first of all? I am uh, 38 this year. 38. So, yeah. Okay. And uh, what kind of job do you have? I currently work in a uh, sales function. Uh, it's called Inside Sales, and it has to do with enterprise software. Um, it's something new. Like I, I think in the late 90s, they start doing it. Uh, but that's, uh, yeah, that's what I do. What is enterprise software? What does that mean? 
So enterprise software is, you know, typically we think of software, but enterprise software, I would say it as more B2B. Uh, so B2B is business to business, uh, whereas B2C is business to consumer. So when you buy Windows, you know, XP or Windows, you know, whatever 10 that you use or, you know, anything that you use on your phone, an app, that's business to consumers. Whereas business to business is, for example, things that you might see or hear commercial for. And you're like, what the hell is that? It's, it's you know, like AWS cloud or Azure cloud or things that, um, uh, you know, Microsoft uh, server system. I didn't know until I go, go into this world that all that kind of stuff exists. Right. And so that's um, that's enterprise software, generally speaking. OK. And so what are the concerns that a B2B uh, application would have versus a, a B2C application? Typically it's scale. So a business would buy a solution to fix something or to provide a function, but the scale is way crazy. Uh, so let's say you use Gmail as an inbox, right? But um, you have 5,000 employees or 1,000 employees, and it's cheaper and better process and control, protect it, serve if you use something else. Uh, so now Gmail in itself is a B2B version. There's a B2B version of it out there, but uh, typically it's scale. So, you know, you buy a mouse, but then let's say you have 5,000 employees. Well, then you're going to go to like, you know, um, a vendor, uh, not like Best Buy, but something else in, in this world. And you say, I need 5,000 mouse. And, you know, they provide everything plus support, um, you know, uh, repairs, et cetera. Stuff like that. It's like the scale is way different. Uh, so it's the same thing that we use in our computers, the same thing that we use in our daily lives. But typically software that we don't come into and we don't care about uh, most of the time. Okay. So. Sounds like sk- does that help? Yeah, sure. I don't know. Sounds like uh, scale and security are two major concerns. Well, yeah, I think like I think you work in technology as a CTO, so you probably purchase some stuff for your uh, your teams uh, and coworkers and colleagues. And enterprise is very much the same. It just the scale is way crazy. Uh, so typically, it's you know software like for anyone who studied business, they probably hear of SAP or Oracle. Uh, but if you don't work in this world, you're just like, I don't know what they do. Like, I don't, I would never use anything, right? But then when you come to this world, you realize, oh, okay, this is what they do. Um, now, I don't specifically work in that domain, but that is considered enterprise software also. Okay. So. Um, and yeah. your marital status seems like you're single. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know why that has anything to do with with the show. But yes, I'm currently single. La- ladies, yep. take note. Um what do you mean it has i'm interviewing you (laughs) yeah sure but i guess i guess this is not a job interview per se so yeah it does go personal uh yeah yeah okay i'm single (laughs) fair enough and uh so tell me about your family uh so my family is my parents plus three other siblings Uh, they're all sisters i'm the only boy in the family Mm -hmm. And the age range is really deep. So, uh, you know, typically when I talk about my family, I tell other people that uh, my parents didn't, didn't do any family planning. The age gap between me and my oldest sibling is 15 years. Uh, so between the two of us, 
you know, there's two other siblings, and they're also about four to five years apart. So it's crazy age range. Um, you know, you think of like Irish families or any other family that's Catholic, and they have six, seven kids, and then the age range is crazy. Well, it's kind of the same thing with us, except we have less. You know, so it's, it's only four kids, mm-hmm. but the gap is um, is large, and so I think that's somewhat affect you know the way i process the world um i'm I'm sure it has uh, to play in but that's and then two of the sisters are married with kids the other one is still single as well and then um i have a combined between two families uh, about let's see four five six nephews and then two nieces so Mm -hmm. yeah and they all live in the same area as you or yeah, we managed to squeeze everybody around uh, Raleigh, North Carolina area. We kind of tend to move together. Uh, we used to be from Cleveland area. And then when I went to the Army, I came back. The The two siblings were here. And then the one sister and the parents were in Cleveland for a while. And then I think 2018, 2019, so last year, I moved uh, the parents down here as well. Uh, so we, we, we tried have a tendency to stick together. Yeah. So they're all around uh, greater North Carolina, Raleigh area. Yeah. Okay. Now, you grew up in Vietnam until you were 10. Is that right? Yeah, 10 and a half, 11. Do you have a lot of memories uh, from Vietnam? I do. um, But it's mostly like, I would say, childhood memories. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, yeah, I, I do remember... Yeah, in that sense, yes. Uh, so it's very, yeah. So talk about that. What what was it like to grow up in Vietnam? I would say it's, I think I grew up in the city. So I'm an urban kid. Like, um, you know, if you talk to anyone in New York or something, they grew up in like apartments and that's like normal. Uh, so that's that's my concept of, you know, how life should be. And I would say it's very similar. Um I think the only thing that's different is uh, what is different? Maybe technology is different, but other than that, is similar stuff. Uh, I think schooling obviously is different, uh, but other than that, is very normal. I had a normal, normal childhood. It's not nothing extra extraordinary. Um, but my memories of Vietnam is just to the childhood memories. So it's, it's tie in one another, right? It's mm-hmm. not like like if you read about it, it's it's you know, going on vacation kind of memory. So I just all tie into childhood onto one one thing. They're all interconnected. Um, how how yeah. is the schooling different? So Vietnam is a model of communism that is off of China communism, communism, which is off of Russia communism. So in the morning when you go to class, well, first of all, public school, you still have a uniform. Um Southeast Asia loves uniform, and even if you are not a communist country like, you know, South Korea or Japan, if you consume any media, you, you notice they wear they wear uniform. Um, I don't want to say suits, but it's it's very um, polished. And so, as grade grade school kids, you wear like slacks and a, and a shirt, but because the temperature, you're allowed to wear short sleeve, right? So it's usually it's a white shirt, blue pants, I believe, and then you wear. Uh, and sometimes I'm consuming, I'm kind of re-education, re-educating myself on, on the culture. You wear a, um, 
a necktie. I forgot what the, the term is called, but it's, it's a ret necktie, you know, for uh, for communism. So it's very... Uh, like a neckerchief? <laughs> I would say... Something like the Boy Scouts wear? Yeah. Thing? Correct. Very Boy Scout-ish. Uh, but it's that kind of thing. So it's that vibe where it's very, you know, follow follow the rules kind of thing. And then what's unique is that you wake up or you start the school day. Everybody's on the playground lining up and you do essentially basic stretches and then you start the school day. They have the whole thing right here. It's like you go to your homeroom, right? If there's a homeroom and then you do uh, Pledge of Allegiance or something like that. And then... Um, you know, you start you start a school day. Well, there it's the entire school on the playground. Uh, I think that's yeah. I mean, other than the entire education system, that my experience. I keep remembering that. Um, and then recess. So when I came to the states, I came to California, and you know, if you don't move as a kid, it's very hard for you to kind of get it. But if you move around, you understand that, you know, different school, different cities, different state, they have budgets, right? Like now it's adult, adult, I understand that. So California, because they have more space and the schools are typically larger, middle schools uh, are like physically like roomier. So if you're from the east, which I'm, you know, I spent an m- amount of time in Cleveland, typically is a building like like vertical, right? Three, four, five floors, etc. Well, in California, West Coast, it's warmer, and I assume any state that's warmer, it, it's spread out, right? So the school buildings itself is spread out. So you have a lot of time to run around. So I remember having recess that was literally 30, 40 minutes um, because of the schedule. And you just, you know, run around play, which... This is California <laughs> or Vietnam? This is California. Uh, in Vietnam, you have no recess. Maybe it was 15 minutes. And they break out because of, of lack of space. They break out the schedule uh, morning to afternoon and afternoon to uh, like late afternoon-ish. So it's a, it's a different kind of like here in North Carolina. We have the um, whatever they call it, the in-out system where it's like rolling cycle of schools where you're like, I forgot what they call it. What did they call it? Yeah. Do you know what yeah. I'm talking about? My, my daughter's did it and I should, I should have this term on the tip of my tongue, but I... I'm struggling to remember. Right, but there, <laughs> there's no vacation. There's no summer vacation. Right. There is vacation every, you know, whatever the, the schedule they determine. But because of the lack of space, they do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Vietnam adopted something similar, but it's different, of course. And so I remember being shocked. Like, so you just hang out right now and play? <laughs> I had a blast, <laughs> right? And uh, in Vietnam, the school, even for fifth, yeah, I mean, even at third grade, you already felt, um, I would call it educational pressure or performance pressure because there is no, I think there is falling back a grade, right? But it's a way bigger deal than it is here. Uh, I mean, it's still here. Here is still bad, but you don't, you know, you don't spank your kids and scold them to the end of the earth kind of bad. Uh, over there, if you fall behind, it is the end of the world for you as a child. It's It's pretty bad. You don't want to do it. Uh, so yeah, I would say that's that you, you can't write about that or explain that enough. You have to experience it, uh, to kind of understand, uh, or watch movies or something, but it's really hard to explain the, the pressure kids are under, uh, over in the East. <clears throat> Cause it's not just Vietnam, it's all the other countries too. But I would say coming over here, recess, no homework on Fridays, uh, <laughs> 
just the amount of play, I, I would I would say is is it's way different. So fifth grade, sixth grade, you don't get real serious homework until maybe high school, like maybe. And I would just, you know, it was easy. Uh, it was just hang out. It's a lot of hanging out with buddies at school. <laughs> so it's great. Yeah, I love it. Now, okay, you said that life was uh, similar to here when you were living in Vietnam, but you've, and you just talked about it, um, the pressure, how it's different. Um, and yeah. on a previous podcast, you talked about how there's um, societal shame for people who don't perform well and it kind of attaches itself to the family. Um, so it does sound like there's a different mindset in Vietnam versus uh, America. Is there anything that you can talk about to sort of illuminate that a little bit more? Yeah, um, there's definitely a difference, right? But in regards to memory as a child, it's very it's very normal or similar to just childhood memories. Uh, so the difference in living, oh boy, like uh, where to start, right? I would say uh, specifically with regards to work, um, Vietnam is a weird blend. So I like it because we have, you know, like <clears throat> most countries like, so the Philippines got, uh, I, I believe, colonized by the Portuguese or maybe the Spanish. Spanish. Um, Spanish. And then India got colonized by British for three, four hundred years too, right? And then Vietnam is colonized by the French for only a hundred years. But that was enough that there are certain French words uh, in the uh, the culture. But the best thing that I take away, like different people, of course, have different experiences. Not, you know, uh, but my experience, the thing that I love the most and the thing that I notice the most when I go back there or when I... Um, you know, think about Vietnam is the concept of the uh, uh, the laissez-faire approach to life. So of all the things that the French love, that concept is by far <laughs> the thing I appreciate most. And so it's a weird mix of all the Eastern religions and society values, plus, uh, you know, chilling out. I think the French <laughs> chills out really good. You know, they drink wine. They don't they don't stress out about work. Right. They 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 work to live. And of all the things that that's different from Vietnam to America, like there's so many, so many things that's different, right? It's really hard to paint a picture. I would say that by far is the most uh, thing I appreciate or I retain or think about all the time. Um, the afternoon nap, I for, the siesta, siesta. No, I forgot what it's called. Well, in Spanish, um, it's siesta. I don't know what it is in, in French. French, but the French have the same thing, and then the, the uh, you know Vietnam also adopted it, so it's uh, <laughs> it's great, uh, and we don't have it here. So, uh, like you literally, you know, shop would would close. So if you go to like I don't know somewhere around noon or one, they might not be open, and they tell you to come back, and that's how it is. So, yeah, definitely uh, love that stuff, but. Um, the CS the afternoon nap, um, you know, when I'm working, definitely I slow down during the afternoon and a nap is nice. But mm -hmm. then when I get up from the nap, I'm not very productive at all. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, productivity is not an important thing. It's so, just yeah. enough that you show up in the afternoon. <clears throat> um, yeah, if you want to, I, I think I understand your question. And I think you're kind of steering it to somewhere, but it has to be like, 
uh, a little bit more specific for me to answer. Um, okay. It's really difficult, right? Like if you're talking about lifestyle or education or food or holidays, maybe I can answer better. So I'm not sure if I answered your previous question. I'm just trying to get a, a, a flavor of it. You know, just trying to poke around the yeah. edges, I guess. Um, so in the school, so when you lived there, the Vietnam War was over or was it in the process of ending? Oh, yeah. It was over. No, no, it's, it's over in 75. So it was before I was born. Oh, okay. So how did, what was the view of the United States uh, that they taught you in school or the general... Um, perception so my education yeah my education was so little like fifth grade and it ended right because then i moved to the state so i don't remember i don't think there was uh it was very like i would say it's agnostic like i don't remember studying world war or anything like that right because like here you don't study that stuff until like high school so fifth grade just like you know run around do some stuff like read some stuff like that's bare bones like anything any exposure right so i can't speak for that i don't remember that, that's interesting um, you have to ask somebody else and the united states inflicted a lot of damage on vietnam so i would expect there to be some resentment um i think so yeah generally there is resentment but i don't remember like watching tv news like news is not the same here right so if you remember you have to you know, delineate between your childhood memories versus your high school education memories, right? And uh, I don't remember. So the way the news work there is, it's like thirty minute block sequences, and then it's not twenty four hour news here. Uh, and then even even for America, way back when they have you know programming schedules where it's news cycle from you know six to eight p.m. and then it stops, whereas you know twenty four hour news channel just like we have today is very it's a newer thing and um so i don't remember being exposed to that all that much um and the education i had so little of it so i don't most but yes it is a negative view for the most part but it changes now right so uh after the 90s when they open up for you know general trade or economics it's very different. It's a dual thing with similar to China now, right? So it's communist by politics, but for businesses, um, a capitalist. So yeah. Okay. Um, so you, your family immigrated. Um, what what year did your family immigrate? Uh, Nineteen ninety three. But my dad was here since eighty two. Okay. And what was the reason so, that your that your family chose to to move from Vietnam to the United States? So, like, <clears throat> after the war or before the war or during the war, a lot of people choose to live uh, leave for economic reasons, uh, period. So, it's, um, you know, it's basically universal immigration story. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to make a living there, uh, but now it's a lot different, mm -hmm. right? So, yeah, I would say that's for the most okay. part. Um and you had mentioned your your father was in a re-education camp. So did he fight for South Vietnam during the war? He did. Yeah. Correct. Correct. Yeah. They don't do that if you fight for North Vietnam. So, so yeah. Did, was that part of the reason why your family immigrated? Just because? Uh, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure that's part of it. I don't talk to my parents about like why you do it. It's almost 
you know, as basic as people want to come to America, even now, right? It's, it doesn't, it doesn't, um, it's not a mystery. Um, so if you ever go visit somewhere or, you know, it's like, it's common sense as I want to go to Paris and see the, um, the tower, right? Or I want to go to Europe and, you know, vacation mm-hmm. uh, is very normal. So I'm not sure if I'm explaining the question, but there's no like, this is a making like decide family meeting kind of thing. No, it's like the entire population want to leave. Um, so it's whoever is lucky enough or have enough resources to do it. They do it. There's no like, yeah. Okay. And there was no government pressure to stop people from immigrating? Oh, no. It's, <laughs> yeah, there was, there was pressure. <laughs> you, you basically have to, you know, it, it's, it's refugees for a reason. Um, but it's not like you do paperwork and leave. No, it's not like that. If that makes any sense. But yeah. Okay. Um, so was it difficult to assimilate when you arrived in the United States? Uh, I would say for the most part, yeah, if you were, I say if you're like 13 and up, you know, life is going to be terrible for you. But I was at 10 or 11, and I'm lucky enough to move to California first. Um, And I think that's a big, big uh, deal. It's a big factor in my assimilation process, because I don't know if you know this, but outside of Vietnam, California has the biggest Vietnamese population in the world. Uh, so there are more Vietnamese in California than, you know, the rest of the United States combined, probably maybe, maybe second. Mm. So where we were allow me to kind of make friends with other Vietnamese kids that, uh, were going through the same thing. So that helped. Um, but, I, but because I was a kid and school wasn't pressure, it's, it's easier. Uh, so like past high school age, if you were, let's say, you know, 20 something going to college forget it. Life is going to be terrible for you. Um, so that experience I don't have, and I won't speak to it because you have to interview somebody else or read about it. But, but yeah, generally as a kid, assembling anywhere is much easier for you, uh, than if you're a teenager or adult. Right. So that's, yeah, I was lucky in that sense. So did your older siblings have a harder time? I imagine so. I wouldn't know, but yeah, I mean, just imagine you moving somewhere and you know, knowing zero of the language and then just picking up and going back to college again because your degree is worth nothing. Um, that's generally how other people experience life. And that's, you know, if you were... So, like, I have friends who are also immigrants, right? Like, I have um, a college buddy who's know other people and have aunts and uncles that were medical doctors and, you know, wherever, and then move here uh, they basically have to redo their education again uh, because, you know, United States medical hospitals don't trust the degree that you have from wherever university that you have it. Even if you were a doctor for 10 years or something, right? The, the, the practices are different here. So that aside, let's say you were a college professor, let's say, you know, just anything. Um, you much have to, pretty much have to do it over. So that's terrible for uh, adults, right? They have to do pretty much redefine and uproot their lives. Uh, So, yeah, Hmm. that, that was, I would, I would say that's pretty tough, but people do it for their kids. Right. So that's the general, the general story. Okay. Um, I want to go back to something. Um, (laughs) 
Now, you've said a few times that uh, your father doesn't like to talk about his experience in the... Mm-hmm. Um, is, is, do you have any idea why that's a touchy subject? Um, I would say this... Yeah, I think it's probably, like, terrible, and he's, he, he doesn't, you know, process it well. But then again, I also don't have the normal relationship um, that a person would have with, with their father. Uh, so he left and, you know, became a refugee in 1984 when I was two. And so when I reconnected with him when I was 10, 11, that was 93. That was a long gap. <clears throat> so it's not like you know, playing catch with your dad kind of experience. It's more like, you know, your relationship with your grandfather or something. It's very different. Uh, mm-hmm. So I don't have like, you know, man to man talk, go fishing. We did, we did go fishing for a while. And I, you know, at first I liked it and then I hated it. So it was, <laughs> it was too boring. So my, <laughs> we have a relationship, but we don't talk the way I would say other, and that's including my mom too, right? We don't talk the way, like my older siblings would talk to them. Uh, I think my um, my older sister and the second older sister have a better uh, average normalized, you know, think, um, you know, of your, your normal, you know, child to parents relationship. Whereas me is more, um, there's a more of a gap. So mm-hmm. I've never talked to him directly. You know, this, this kind of conversations, it doesn't really happen uh, with me and my dad. It's, um, because it's different. It's a- because it's uncomfortable to do that or just it's one one is uncomfortable to my relationship with him is different so it's not like we just hang out and talk about stuff Mm -hmm. i don't i don't call my parents and like hey this is what's going on today you know i don't do that uh i think there's a reason why um daughters to parents are easier than sons to parents but maybe i'm over generalizing because i i've seen other or I've met other, um, you know, I have friends and whatnot, and they have a very, uh, I was almost sibling-like uh, relationship with their parents, right? They just talk to them like, you know, their friends or whatever. And maybe because I have such a gap with my dad uh, that I don't do that as much. So, yeah, mm-hmm. uh, it just never came up. But mostly I would say it's because of, of our relationship versus his experience. So, like, let's say he has buddies. He would talk to them about that stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah so okay. no i would say it's not because like we, we avoid talking about it it's just we don't do it because i'm not the right audience to do it with okay interesting um so you moved to california from vietnam and then at some then you moved from california to cleveland is that right yeah correct and how long were you in california when did you move to cleveland i was in california in 96 so like two years two and a half years maybe and then in cleveland we i spend the majority of my my life so i would say that's my hometown quote unquote but um and what was yeah. the reason for moving from california to cleveland primarily i think it was because my one older sibling uh wanted to um hook up and get married with her current husband and i think we were going to just move so I think I don't remember right, but I think the older sibling and the second oldest move to Cleveland first and stayed there maybe a year or two, and then we did like a family trip to visit, and then we just never left. <laughs> <laughs>
the move wasn't a um, a decisive move. It just happened uh, organically, I suppose. In California? He was. He was working, and then he basically stopped working <laughs> when he moved to, to Cleveland. I'm sure there's family drama there that... Um, you know that's unprocessed uh, but but yeah he uh, doesn't work in cleveland for the time we were there or didn't work okay yeah so I, I guess i would normally assume that when a family moves from one state to another they do that because the there's a job change involved uh, but that doesn't seem to be the case in your situation yeah i think it was more family um family thing than than job change uh, it's not like you get a career and then you get a job that's better. No, it's not like that. It was, um, you know, family trying to stay together more important than, um, than anything else. Cause the originally, I, you know, I was such a child, but I remember the, the two older siblings moved because, uh, California is very expensive, right? Even in the nineties, it was still expensive. Um, and they realized economically it doesn't work. So they had to. Also find jobs, but I think my dad was pushing them to go to college and get technical degrees, like two-year degrees, which is, a, uh, mm -hmm. you know, then they disagree with him and, and want to pursue something else, want to start working. And there's probably some family drama there. So they left and tried to find some, you know, opportunities elsewhere. Um, and this is like, you know, pre-internet, pre-cell phones. Uh, so they did what they thought was best. Uh, and then the family just kind of followed them around. So that's, I think that's, that's my theory behind it. And I think it's pretty, pretty true. Okay. Yep. That's So, okay. So you were in Cleveland for high school, I guess? High school, college, and then a, another few years. Yeah. But you were in the army as well. Correct. Did, did you go to, did you go to college before the army or after the army? After. 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 Okay. So let's then let's talk about the army. Um, what what was your experience like? And how how many years were you in the army? I was in there for four years. So yeah. Okay. And, and why did you choose to to go into the army? Uh, it's a combination of factors. Uh, so it was mostly economic. Uh, it was two thousand eight two thousand nine economic crash and. I was just, um, you know, I was part of like a layoff. I was burnout. I didn't like Cleveland anymore. Uh, and I would just, I just wanted to leave. Plus the army and any federal service, you know, even the post office, uh, if you go, well, not the post office. If you go and do a contract with them, they have a, uh, I guess a perk. It's called the Civil Service Mem Member Relief Act. Uh, so basically any debt, especially credit cards, uh, they will lower the APR of that debt down to 6%. So at the time, you know, I, I had a crew or acquire a few things and mostly, yeah, finding a job, leaving town. So it's a combination of factors. And then I, um, I just tired of all of it and uh, I want to explore something else. So, you know, not, <laughs> not the most, uh. I mean, it's logical in like a Vulcan sense, but of course it's terrible in like, you know, not involving your family in the decision kind of sense. And um, yeah, so I did it and then I just 
I just made a decision and I go. So, was your family against that decision? Uh, I think so, uh, but it was too late, right? So by the time I announced my decision, it was already two weeks to the date I need to I need to leave. And uh, I think for the most part, they were against, but it, they also understand, you know, it's like, this is after college, right? You, <laughs> what are you going to do? Stop me? You, you can't, you know. So it's, uh, they understand. I thought you said you went, I thought you said you went into the army before college. No, after. I said after. After? Yeah. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. Yes. Yeah. I misheard you. Um, but you were an enlisted man. Correct. So do you know the difference between enlisted and officer? Yeah. And it's my understanding that, you know, if you have a college degree, that that's sort of an entry into the officer. Corps. Correct. Is that correct? correct? But at the time, due to timeline, and also I just didn't want to deal with it. Uh, if you go officer, it's basically you go through this process, kind of like another job interview. Whereas enlisted is, is automatic. They, they need you for your body. You, you know, as long as you have functioning mechanical body, that's all they need it for. Uh, especially the, the job I was going for. So it's a faster process. And I was so uh, distraught with being physically in Cleveland and the house. And I just, I just literally wanted to leave. Um, and this made the most sense because I could cover, you know, expenses Blah blah blah, dead. Like it, it makes a lot of sense out uh, in other things. So, I, uh, I left. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and um, when you're unemployed, it, it's psychologically uh, <laughs> traumatizing, as we've discussed in the past. And the army gives you like a structure, I would imagine. Yeah. To enter, and, and so a lot of those anxieties are are allayed because. Yeah, of I would say. You know, in like family terms, if I, I told, I think one of my nephew about this, but it's, I would say like it's comparable to running away. Um, you know, after years after it, I, I was sitting down thinking about it. It's basically running away at the time. Uh, the, the other solution or, you know, one of the many solutions out there was to just get a second job or, or work two, three jobs or something to make ends meet. Um, but it wasn't just that it was also getting away from the from um you know cleveland and my family also so that's part you know that's the it's, it's the solution that solved a lot of um multiple problems so that's why i did that but it wasn't like this is like my passion in life and then i was inspired by somebody it's, it's nothing like that um i chose something that make the most sense and allowed me to leave the fastest so i did try the Navy right before uh, the Army. I don't know if you know about the recruitment office, but it's basically you go into this little tiny office in a in a shopping plaza, <laughs> and they have like everybody there, right? And these people are basically recruit. Become recruiter is actually a job too, and it's just kind of walk you through, see what what's good a good fit. But the problem with uh, the Navy is their numbers are a lot smaller, right? And so the Army is by far the biggest numbers as population, which means they need bodies. So uh, if you watch any movies, you realize that people do 20 years and retire. Like that's like the thing. And it's a contract base. So you don't even have to do 20 years. You can do three, four, two. It's just how you negotiate it. And typically people it, come in and out of the army all the time, very fast. So their numbers are always changing. 
same thing with na- same thing with everything else. But the thing with a smaller force is once you're in, people have a tendency to stay, right, um, and leave and whatnot. And so the army has a lot of movement, whereas the navy, uh, the job I was going for, wouldn't be leaving for basic training for six months. Uh, so it was a long time. And I was, at the time, I was like, uh, no, I need to like leave now. <laughs> so you know, what's funny, what's terrible is uh, I've seen the movie Stripes. Uh, I don't know if you ever seen the movie Stripes with Bill Murray. Yeah, I've seen that. Yep. And I thought, you know, you go in, you sign one little piece of paper. No, no, it was stacks and stacks of paper. It was basically a mortgage. You know, think of, think of buying a house with a mortgage. That's the amount of paperwork you have to go uh, to deal with to sign up. And um, it was ridiculous. And I was like, this is not simple at all. <laughs> like, I thought this was strike. You want me to do five push-ups? You know, it wasn't like that. It was a, a whole process. Uh, so, yeah. And um, and I did it. Uh, so I tried that. The Navy didn't work. The number's too small. I look at the officer thing, and it was just too... It was also a long-term kind of thing, uh, the interview process and all that. So it's just going to take some time. Uh, and I was too... Um, I wasn't patient enough. I was too impatient, so I needed. So I did what I did and joined the infantry, enlisted. Did yep. you enjoy your experience in the army? I would say it's sweet and sour. <laughs> it's more sour than sweet. Yeah. Uh, explain that. I would say <laughs> there are things I like and there are things I don't. Right, and um, and it's very. What did you like? Yeah. Uh. For me, for somebody who's so, uh, I would say, for me, if you like not thinking, it's great. <laughs> so if you like uh, turning off your brain, it's fantastic. I had I had problems adjusting, of course, uh, but um, but other than that, um, yeah. If you like that, that's good. If you like because it's so structured uh, and there's always someone telling you what to do. Plus the role I signed up for was it like the least, you know, like the lowest in the totem pole. So it's like you don't have any responsibilities whatsoever. So there's no middle management stress. There's no, there's zero stress other than physical stress and dealing with um, essentially, you know, you equate it to managers or sergeants who are just terrible people. But other than that, it's, it's fine. So you know how to compartmentalize, which you learn real fast then um, you're good. If you have a problem with compartmentalizing, which a lot of people do, um, then, you know, you, you're not, you're not going to have a good time. What do you mean by so, compartmentalizing in that context? So when you're, most of the time infantry is, you know, they call it infantry for a reason. It's teenagers, you know, 18 to 20 something. Uh, compartmentalizing is knowing how to deal with stress and especially knowing where your, uh, your your limitation and your actions impact versus the things that you cannot impact. Uh, so it's kind of like, you know, things you can do versus things you cannot do. And if you don't know how to differentiate between that, you're not going to have a good time at all. Hmm. Uh, you're going to be stressed out all the time. Almost everybody is a functioning alcoholic in the Army, especially infantry, and it's just like compounding amount of stress on, you know, more and more stress all the can, time. Can so. you give me an example of a situation where someone couldn't compartmentalize properly? You, like... uh, 
So let's say you work with somebody, right? And they literally yell at you and berate you and you feel the most insulted you ever become. But 10 minutes later, that person is your best friend and want to hang out with you at, at the bar and drink a beer. That's compartmentalizing. And if you don't know how to do that, and if you equate and take things personally, uh, you're not going to have a good time. So, you know, we, we read about or learn about suicide, uh, soldier suicide, depression, all this stuff. It's, you know, times it by 100, and that's the reality. Uh, so what do you see on the news, the articles you read? That's just the bare minimum. Like, you're just scratching the surface. Uh, I wouldn't, like, my nephews right now, like, when they we talk about stuff, I would recommend them to go to the Air Force, and I would never allow them... Um, you know, they, they, better, they better be hiding it from me if they sign up, but I would not recommend this. Um, knowing who they are, I would recommend maybe to one kid, uh, but for the most part, no, I wouldn't recommend to the other kids. They don't have the personality to deal with it. Hmm. So, okay. Yeah. Hey. And does that make, I don't know, I mean, you know, compartmentalizing in normal corporate term means you kind of break out certain problems, right? And in, 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 in the Army life is, knowing which problem you can actually fix and, and then not, not immediately about the ones you can yeah. yes immediately learn to de-stress as fast as you possibly humanly could which is very difficult um and i think my ability to do that come from the part that i was actually older i was working in a normal corporate environment already and then you know i still have to adjust uh, but you know, I just a little bit, I would say mentally a little bit faster than everybody else. Uh, not that everybody else didn't know how to do it, but they, they vent in different ways, right? Mm -hmm. um, typically it's drinking. <laughs> yeah. Which I do too, but it's not as, I would say not as bad because I understand what was going on. Right. You weren't trying to numb out your feelings. You were trying to. Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, I think, yeah, correct. Pretty much. If you're 18, high schooler, didn't go to college yet, you know, didn't know anything about life, you would not have a good time. And so that's typically that's where the problems come. But from. don't they want those types of those young moldable yes. minds? Correct. Correct. So it's a it's a duel, right? Uh, and I read about it and it's like it's really, you know, the training and the mental thing, they do a thing where they're trying to make you feel and think that you're invincible but at the same time pliable enough so that they can tell you uh, whatever they want to tell you and you believe it. So it's a dual kind of, you know, double blade kind of, or a double edge kind of thing. Um, and it makes sense. This is why they call it the infantry. And it's, you know, in the sense of like general warfare, like World War One and World War Two with front lines, it makes absolute perfect sense. But I think uh, after, I see, yeah, after World War II, pretty much everything else is a conflict kind of style. And so do you still need the way the army, you know, is structured? Probably. But um, it's keeping evolving. And now, like, you see movies and stuff like that. It's all special forces, right? It's all, like, unique, super elite. And that's because we evolved to have, you know, conflict-based warfare versus... Um, invasion-based warfare i suppose we don't we don't do that as much anymore i think after iraq that was the last time we ever invade like a city or a country um so now it's all conflict right even since the 80s it's, it's that kind of style of warfare 
Uh, and so you still need that. You still need the, the basic infantry, but you're going to have problems, right? Because <laughs> of the way you run things. Like people are not, generally speaking, mature enough to process and compare. And if you don't teach that, which they absolutely don't, right? There's, you, you know, you're just a body, then you're going to have problems, right? Um, so that's my theory. There's no way to prove it. I don't know how to prove it, so. <laughs> okay. I'm not requiring you to, to prove anything. Um, yeah. So did you go to Iraq? Is that where you were deployed? Or? No, I went to Afghanistan. Uh, so I was with the phase that I came in in two. Oh God, now I forget. I came in 2010. So Iraq was over-ish. Um, and so I was part with uh, the, the army was in. So there is like mission for a, a large group, right? And then this mission, it's start breaking down into your little specific tiny mission, right? And that's how it generally works. Uh, so the entire army was in this mission called Operation Enduring Freedom. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's called OEF for short. And then they break it down and break it down and break it down. And when it comes to you, you know, you have very specific missions. So I, you know, in a larger sense, Afghanistan is Operation Enduring Freedom. And then OIF is, um, is Iraq, Operation Ensuring Freedom. I don't know. I don't remember. But it's OIF and OEF. And you're, uh, what I was with is OEF. So it's after. Um, yeah, I was with Afghanistan, but... Um, and what was your specific mission in, in Afghanistan? So there was a river in Afghanistan, uh, and you can look it up on Google Maps, too, um, where I was. And my specific mission is my battalion. Battalion is like a large group that's a thousand-ish, two thousand, depending on how it works, uh, people. And the entire battalion is occupying this entire river uh i forgot what the river is called i had to look up uh i had to look up this area once but basically we are training local uh villagers into what we call alp afghan local police so we were working on this program to essentially win hearts and minds and we the theory was that if you make if you hire train develop local villagers that are and when you say village it's literally you know in the city between like let's say apex and carry that's like you know two different village you know very very far uh but if you say let's say carry in morrisville then it's a little bit closer uh, but imagine a country with no you know infrastructure and cars are very limited um what you're looking to do is source people from that local village so that they're loyal to the people in that village and so that's how uh, the U.S. Army and plus, you know, the U.N. and all, all that was theorizing. This is how we're going to combat and essentially get loyalty from the local people. And so that's that's the program. That was the mission to create Afghan local police. Um, and were you actually interacting with, with yeah. the locals? Yeah. So we were attached. So attached is like partner up with or assigned to uh, special forces, we, we attached to the team, and uh, we were handing out AKs, training how to shoot, you know, give them uniform, teaching them, you know, basic, like, this is how you target, this is like what you do, you know, life, life in a day of a, a local police, uh, help them build a uh, little, like, security post station along, like, the, the road next to the river, and they would guard it. Um, and a lot of it is like outside my scope, right? Like there were like, 
I guess the mayor of that village or whatever you call them were meeting with like, you know, the the peer on the U.S. Army of like whatever major or general and they were hashing out their plan and stuff like that. So that's part of it, right? Uh, it's, it's a year long, multiple year kind of thing. Uh, and so that was like, uh, and put, put it in like commercial term or enterprise term, it's basically a project that, yeah. So I was with that, interview people, signing them up, you know, taking their pictures. We actually, I think we might have ID cards at one point. I don't remember, but yeah, just training they them. They spoke English? No, no, we had interpreters. Okay. Um, so yeah, we had interpreters to help us out. Yeah. And did, did it feel dangerous to you while you were there? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, it actually is. Sometimes it gets to me, but I think after you get numb, um, after like two weeks. Uh, so you, like I said, if you don't know how to compartmentalize or not the process, you have a lot like this is this is how people get like ptsd right they get a lot of problems like a lot of problems but yes it's uh it's always there kind of thing mm -hmm. um you hear gunfire you hear you know mortar shells you, you have alarms going off in the middle of the night it's just constant and so i don't i don't like note it anymore like it's a it's a thing that happens um I don't know if you ever watched like The Wire, the TV show back in the nineties or anything like I've seen that. Seen it a few times, probably not enough to know specifics. Yeah, but but it's like they I forgot, I was watching a TV show one time. They were interviewing um, you know, like a kid in the neighborhood and I think it was a documentary, and there were like gunshots in this bad neighborhood, right? And the kid was just talking to the camera crew and it didn't phase them. Whereas the camera crew was freaking out. And that's kind of like the same thing that was happening to uh, to me over there, right? After a while, you just kind of like, you analyze and process information super fast. Um, I think there was like a surreal moment once or twice I had it when, because um, I, we, we had like a communal shower, so to speak, right? So you have to go to a place that you were living in like a shack, pretty much. Uh, and then... It's our base, like I live on a base. It's like a, think of a square box in the middle of nowhere. Uh, and we just put up a fence around it. And then, you know, of course it's reinforced and all that. And you have, you have people manning it. <clears throat> but you were going to this place to take a shower. I was in the middle of the night because, you know, it's cooler, it's so hot there. Um, and I was walking back, have nothing on me, which is fine because I was in the base. It's, you know, yes, danger could happen, but I'd rather go to shower with my flip-flops and, and my shower kit and nothing else. And then when I go back, I was walking back and in the distance, you could hear, I could hear gunfire. So imagine a square, right? And then draw that square out on the four corners, extended square. And so we would have posts, right? Like a, like an outpost. And part of that outpost is shared between us and the local Afghan uh, army. Uh, now my unit wasn't dealing with all that, but there's a rotation, there's a schedule, right? And then in the distance, I remember walking back, I saw, it's called tracer rounds. So when you shoot <clears throat> when you shoot uh, a weapon, some of the rounds are tracer, like they have a little fire on them so that you can see where your, your fire is going. So at night, um, you can see tracer rounds, like you could hear gunfire and, and you know bullets are flying a certain way and I remember just walking. And I was like, 
oh, we're being shot mm-hmm. at. Oh, it's immediately within the second I realized that, I was like, oh, it's too far. And then I was like, oh, I'm fine. And within that second, I was like, wow, I'm completely numb to this now. Uh, and I remember, you know, when we when we touched down the first day or first night, it was like every moment it's like, what's going on? Um, you hear something, you're like, what's going on? But after a few months or whatever, you know, it was it was different. So you have this instant to analyze danger super fast. And yeah, part, part, part of the problem when people go back is they don't know how to turn that off. Um, and it's, it takes time, right? Uh, so yeah, hmm. that's when like this surreal moment where I was like able enough to understand that. Um, <laughs> and I, it was very surreal because I was like, huh, interesting. I just, you know, able to be introspective enough to understand what was going on. But if you don't, you know, know how to pull yourself out of that, you, you're just in that state all the time. Hmm. Um, constantly, you know, stressing yourself out. So, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, there, there's, there's danger, but you know, think of firemen who respond super fast to go and put out a fire, and then when they don't have a fire, they just hang out and you know are completely like cool and relaxed. That's pretty much how it is all the time. So you have to do, you have to be able to do that. Uh, otherwise, you you have a breakdown. And so what was your rank when you, uh, well, first of all, how, how long were you in Afghanistan? Uh, I was there for a year. So typically 11 months because the last, the, the, the month getting there and getting back takes a lot of logistics. And so typically you have to go somewhere, you have to stay there, you have to go to another spot, you have to stay there. It, it takes time to move people and their equipment to the end spot. Um, so the destination is like, it takes a long time to get there. So getting there and getting back takes a lot of time. So I was there, um, about a year, 11 months ish. Um, when I joined the army because of my college, I was E4, which is enlisted four, um, which is a newer rank. It's called specialist. And then I stay that way until I left, which is very rare. Most people, you know, move on and, you know, rank up. Mm-hmm. But uh, I didn't. I had I had options, and I didn't want to. Okay, <laughs> I was too lazy. And so, yeah. is that a higher rank? Are there lower ranks below E four? Yeah, there was only three lower ranks. Which, so basic training is four months, mm-hmm. or no? Is it one? Two, yeah, four months. Basic training now is four months, and you go from E one to E nine, I believe, in the entire army. But think of the E7, E8, E9 as management or middle management. Are they sergeants? And so you have a lot. At that level? Yeah, they have different names. So like some of them is, uh, I believe it's staff sergeant. Um, I forgot something. Master sergeant. And then something else. There's a lot. Uh, But at that point you have a lot, you have a lot of E6, you have a lot of E7, E8 and stuff like that throughout the entire um, organization of the army. And then E1s has the most, right? So you go in as E1 and then you go E2, E3 and by, you know, you rank up after uh, spend time in the army. So it's automatic. So if you're an E4 and there's an E1 near you, I mean, is the E1 expected to obey your uh, commands. Yes. Okay. Yeah. But it doesn't, you know, yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. Okay. So there's, um, 
this command structure, uh, and it goes by rank. Uh, and then, uh, let's see, an officer is O. They start out as um, lieutenant, you know, O1, and then they go all the way up. Uh, so, yeah. Okay. Yep, yep. So after you left Afghanistan, um, how, how much longer were you in the Army for? Uh, I was still in there for like a year and maybe a few months. Uh, so it takes take some time. It, we came back and essentially at the time, it was 2013, 2014. And at that time, like we kind of declare uh, Afghanistan war is over, but it's not. It's, it's weird. And then uh, so I spent another year-ish in Tacoma, Washington. Uh, that's where... Joint Bay Lewis McCord, we call JBLM is based, mm -hmm. and so that's my my unit was there. So yeah, I was I hung out there for another year or something, and then I left. What were you doing yeah. during that time? What was your unit? Uh, so when the army, uh, yeah, the army when they're not at war, they just train or just do your job. Basically, you know, just they find things for you to do. Mm -hmm. Let's just say that. Um, but every year there's training and then you train up to that training. Uh, so you're always like preparing. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Did, but it, did it feel like the pressure was off once you got back to Washington? Washington. Uh, yeah, yeah, I would say so. But ironically, was that a good feeling? Sounds, I mean, no, it's not. So it sounds crazy and insane, but it makes a lot of sense uh, when you're in that environment. And I would say to this day, I would, I would, uh, I would do that, right? So I would change the policy to, and they did, they did do that for a certain unit, but my unit wasn't uh, lucky enough to be able to select. So after the Afghan war declared was declared overish, um, they had a downsize, right? So the army downsized, and they did a, um, they did a thing where you can actually sign a piece of paper, and they say that your term is fulfilled, so you can leave. Um, and they did it to a unit and they merged different units into different things. Um, but generally speaking, after that, you kind of don't, it's very different when you're deploying. Deploy is like when you actually go to war. Um, your mental state is just different. And so training doesn't make sense anymore. Uh, like certain part of training makes sense, but certain part doesn't. And so it's very, um, yeah. Very, I would say tough. Kind of a letdown. To hang in there. Or... Yeah, uh, it's stressful in a different way. Uh, so it's like, yeah, it's just not fun times, uh, especially if you're infantry. Okay, so so you yeah. got out of the army, and then what what did you do after that? So I went back to corporate life. Um, before I left, I was working in the technology field, so I came back and worked. Uh, essentially a temp job that rolled into like a real job and it was here I was in Cleveland but I applied job for here I applied to maybe three or four and somehow I was lucky enough for the interview to strung together in a week so I came down here kind of stayed with the one sibling interview for three four and then took one of the offering and kind of started working uh, with, with like no no housing and then eventually settled down and stayed with the one sibling for maybe three, four years, because um, she she was down in um, Apex Fuquay area, and she's still there now, but she has a little bit more room, so I stayed with them. And um, 
worked in what I call customer support service, kind of IT support kind of role, and then move mm -hmm. on from there. Yeah. What was your degree in in college? Uh, it was in business administration, but the field I pursue was in, uh, at the time it was called business information system. So it was basically information or IT uh, information technology today. Um, but at the time my school was really small and they roll it underneath the business school. Um, so yeah. So does your degree relate to what you're, no. what you're doing? Almost, almost <laughs> nothing. Uh, they, they exposed some concept, uh, but it was so new at the time that it would be more successful if I was, um, you know, computer science major, where I took maybe one or two classes, but the most of it uh, was on the job training, uh, a little bit of like self-interest, so I knew a little bit. And then uh, now, especially now, um, you know, there's a lot of certifications out there. So you can get certified in this field and that field and that role and this role. It's just a tons of certification out there. And so it's a lot of like technical um, education. Uh, so if, if I had pursued that, uh, which I, I realized there's never, it's never going to be enough. Um, and I'm not that kind of technical, um, you know, I don't have the skill sets required or the interest required to maintain that. So I uh, choose to just kind of switch again into what I do now, which is, you know, a little sales, um, less technical, but still in a technology realm, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, that job that you just talked about applying for, is that the job that you work in now? No, uh, that was two, three jobs ago. Yeah. Two, three jobs. Yeah. So have you been just sticking to the technology sales uh, um, arena my, since, since that time? Correct. Uh, so I, when I left the army, that was 2014. And then this role I'm doing now, I did another role similar to it uh, right before. So maybe I did the customer support, IT support kind of thing for just about two years. And I move on to uh, immediately to like the sales side um, after that. So yeah. And that's what you're doing now? Correct. Okay. And do you enjoy it? Uh, for the most part, yeah, I do. What do you like about it? Uh, you can never be like 100% in this role, uh, at least for me. Uh, so it's very difficult. So um, development is already built in. So you can you can always it's it's, it's a art and science kind of thing. So you can always get better at it. You can never stop learning or growing. Uh, I mean, technology is the same thing with the IT support role. You can get certified, but this there's nothing to certify you as a good salesman. You just know how to get better and learn how to get better. And at the time, I was kind of working in the, um, you know, I'm a, I started in Toastmaster, and I realized, like, this, what we do, communication, learning to speak, knowing how to write, um, learning how to listen, I, I'm, I'm lacking a lot of those skills, and this, this job or this industry, um, you know, converge very nicely with, with those things that I'm trying to pursue. Uh, so it's... it's you know, completely, almost way farther away than, than what I did in the Army, uh, as much as possible, uh, like 180 degrees different. And so, yeah, I like it because it's challenging. I am plateauing a little bit, but at the same time, 
Um, it's still in a technology realm, which I'm a big fan of. Uh, so I like sci-fi and all that stuff. So it's like a good blend of everything that I'm trying to pursue. So if one thing fails, something else pick up for me to keep doing it uh, for like it. Yeah, but I'm not sure if I answer it. Yeah. Yeah. I, <laughs> any answer you give is uh, informative. So thank you. Um, okay. Let's switch gears here a little bit. Uh, you described yourself as admiring Spock mm -hmm. in the past. Yes. Uh, talk about that. Yeah, I think, I think his uh, Lee, Lee, I forgot his name now. Nimoy, oh God, Nimoy, something Nimoy. Leonard Nimoy. Leonard Nimoy have a very unique look as an actor. And of course, with the Vulcan, with the eyebrows and the, the pointy ears, it's very elf-like. But at the time, I didn't know what, you know, I was never exposed to the fantasy realm with elf and, and dwarfs and all that stuff. So that's my first, like, alien that I can think of. And I just thought it was so cool. It makes such an impact on me. And the way he processed things, I loved it because I could relate to him. I didn't know, you know, all these terminology uh, when I was younger, of course. I just, you know, oh, that's cool. Um, but it's, you know, the show itself taught me about logic. And I'm like, yes, all logic. You know, let's just get it all in motion. It's so stupid. Um, and, and it's like, you know, everything I see in my life is very, you know, all the problems. And especially like drama. Like I never got or understood drama. I think the closest thing I got to it was when TNT, you know, drama's here kind of logo is, is law and order. I kind of get that. But any other shows they have where it's all like annoying people stuff, I never got it. I just love all the other stuff. So I love Spock because he represents the delineation, right? And then how humans can be better. At least that's to me. I'm not sure if that was intended. I think it is intended in Star Trek to kind of show that. Um, and so I... I you know, it spoke to me. I'm, I'm the, definitely the target audience they were going for with that character. <laughs> I don't know who wrote it, but, you know, whoever did. Gene Roddenberry. Gene Roddenberry, yeah. Gene, yeah. Now, is it based on, like, any kind of books, on novellas or anything? Or just, just Star Trek came out and that was it? Like, you know, it came out out there? Um, yeah, that's a good question. I don't, I don't know. Um, I know they were... You know how the the crew of the Enterprise was very diverse. Yes. Yeah. Um, you know there were different races, and then Spock was an alien. Yeah. Um, Which is like the the other reason why I like it so much. Um, I think it's one of the few TV shows that when um, you know I connected with my dad on. We also watch a bunch of MacGyver's as well, and I think some of that, you know, like we, I guess he has the uh, gadgets kind of technology you know fan thing uh and i kind of like the same thing but you know the newer version of that is all software and you know apps and stuff like that so i it's a fan of all that stuff which is kind of like interconnected uh, on that level so i like um star trek because of some of the things they do that's very different at the time very unique and uh you know forward and progressive so but spock particularly because he's not an idiot like uh jim kurt so <laughs> that's why i like him <laughs> did did you like uh, Next Generation? I watched some of that. I didn't watch it enough to care for it. So hmm. I think my original exposure to Star Trek was just a few of the episodes of, uh, of Star Trek. Um, the original series. Yeah, the original series. And then I, I move on from that, right? So, hmm. But, you know, Spock stuck with me, hmm. right? Yeah. Yeah. 
Next Generation sort of grows on you. The, the first couple of seasons, I don't think they really knew what they were doing. Mm. They were trying to feel out the, the show. But as it progressed towards the end, it, got, it just kept getting better and better. Yeah. So, I don't know. Something to uh, pursue in the future, maybe. Um, now, you also have mentioned that you enjoy action-adventure movies. Yeah. And sci-fi. Yeah. So... Yeah, is that along the same lines? Um, well, Spock is logical, but so action and adventure, is there a relationship between action and adventure and sci-fi? Obviously, sci-fi connects to Spock, but is there a relationship between action and adventure and, and what you like about Spock? No. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, well then what, it's, what is it's basically, about that, that appeals to you? Yeah, actually, I think action and adventure has to come with my childhood. I just grew up on that kind of cinema. Uh so it's there's no expo. I mean, there were explosion of different things, but you know, the late '80s, Hong Kong cinemas took over Pan Asia, um, and basically, you know, that is the standard. Um, so at the time, the U.S. didn't know about Jackie Chan, but that the '80s is where he kind of broke out. So he did the '70s when he was still young, and in the '80s, he basically start forming his own stunt team, which is a very new concept. Now we have stunt team in America. But it wasn't, I'll say in the last 10 years, you know, 10, 20 years that we started doing that. Um, so action has been in that world for such a long time that it has an impact on me. Yeah, I think just, just culture uh, growing up in the 70s and 80s in Asia, you know, or the cinema that was Hong Kong cinema exposed me to so much of that stuff uh, that I like. Growing up, I know about Jackie Chan and, and Bruce Lee immediately, you know, kind of like, almost on the same level as sports stars that are, you know, worship here. Um, we know about them and we, you know, we adore them before, you know, music people or pop stars or athletes, action superheroes, actors are really it. So, um, yeah, I think, uh, I think I get burnout every now and then, but I like action a lot more than other genres. What's your favorite action movie? Hmm. It's a rolling thing. I used to like, I used to say Enter the Dragon is the top there is. But, um, you know, I have to say it's a rolling thing. And I would say within the last two, three years, the John Wick series is really good. So that's my uh, my favorite go-to for, uh, for um, the time being. Mm-hmm. And, and what in particular about that captures your imagination? So they started or they popularized a new action subgenre, I would say. And basically they invented gunfu, uh, which is super cool. Uh, there were some concept of it before they did this. Uh, so the stunt team from John Wick is the same people that work with him in The Matrix. Uh, and so he... You know, he loves doing it. And then the stunt team realized he can memorize or uh, do the choreography by himself for long sequences, which is very difficult for Western uh, action stars to do. They don't know how to do any of it. They're just very ignorant of Kung Fu and martial arts in general. And, you know, Keanu Reeves is the exception where he likes doing it and then he can do it and then he can kind of act, you know. I mean, if you call acting. Um, So he can do it, and he can do it well. uh, And it's very rare. 
Uh, whereas in Asian cinema, there's tons of people that can do it. And so they combine normal fighting with um, tactical shooting. Would you see in like Collateral with Tom Cruise a little bit? Uh, you've seen in other action movies. It's, it's very cool and good to watch. And so they combo the two together. It is amazing. Hmm. <laughs> it's like amazing. If you see, I think, Equilibrium, which I recommended before with uh, Christian Bale, there is some of that. Um, and it was the initial. I would say that's the um, kind of like the spawning moment. Whereas John Wick, they took it to the next level and, um, you know, perfected it. So, so it, yeah. It, it's like the artistry of, of, of the... You just have to watch it, man. But that's what you like you about just, it, the, the artistry of it? It's the artistry and then how cool it is. It's very cool and it's very new. And I think that a lot of TV shows are going to try to copy it and they're going to fail epically because they don't know how to do it. Hmm. But, well... So what does it mean to know how to do it? Uh, do it well. <laughs> well, what? So what, what is it that they're doing? Gunfu. <laughs> they're not, not going to be able to replicate it. Okay. If you want me to define it, you're going to have to watch it. It's it's just an amazing blend. What they did is they combined judo, yeah, actual tactical shooting, plus other regular martial arts, and a variety of like tactical gun know-how. So if you ever watch like any kind of action where the guy is like, you know, this is a sniper and this is a thing and they this is simple real fast, put it together kind of thing. That's the vibe that you get. Cause he the character he plays in us is a top end assassin that knows literally how to kill people with a pencil. And they did it in the second movie. It was amazing. <laughs> and um, he can shoot any guns. He knows all the guns. And this is like, you know, have you ever seen Transporter, the the series with Jason Stratham? No. Um He's like an expert at driving. Uh, and so it's, it's a, I would say it's a B plus series is a kind of underground hit. Um, whereas um, instead of an assassin, he, you know, his job in the gang world is to transport things. So John Wick is like a top end assassin that knows how to do anything. Uh, and so he's a, he's a living weapon walking around. And so that's amazing. Uh, he show off all these capabilities that you see bit and pieces in like video games and movies, and they, they pull it all together. It's amazing for me uh, as an action fan. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I, I wasn't trying to ask you to define it. Um, what I, mm. I was trying to get at what what you particularly liked about it as a, as like a, about as a window it. Yeah. into your mind. And I, I think we got there. Oh, yeah, that... I like it because it was it's really good. I mean, you just had never seen it before in, you know, in anything else. Not the the volume of it either. Uh, in Equilibrium, you see a little bit of it, but in John Wick, you see a lot of it, and it's um, it's like going to a buffet and eating everything you want, <laughs> right? And it's a top end notch. <laughs> like if there is a top end buffet of action movie, that is the John Wick series. Because from now on, from, from, you know, John Wick on, anybody that tried to do anything that is not as good is going to be compared against John Wick. Like, he is the standard. Hmm. Kind of like uh, The Godfather is a gangster movie. Like, everything is going to be based on it compared to, you know, The Godfather. Uh, so that's how good it's going to be. Okay. So John Wick uh, out outdoes The Matrix in that capacity? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. All right. The, the Matrix is a good movie and it's action. But it's not gun fu. Like this is a new thing, um, and you will, 
you know, if you, if you haven't seen it, this is like a right, why we, I want to have you see it and have your mind blown. Okay. Uh, I guess I have to see it now. Are there any closing thoughts you have on that subject or? Yeah, if you don't know about it, you should probably look into it. Um, and if you don't like that, well then, you know, action and adventure is not your thing. Or action is not your thing. <laughs> okay. That's, well, that's my two cents about it. Yeah. Okay. So we've reached uh, the final subject that I want to touch on. Um, you uh, have articulated in the past that uh, you're an atheist. Mm -hmm. um, so, and I, you also said that you were raised Roman Catholic, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, I was too. Um, so how did, how did you come to your current uh, understanding? I think college uh, was where I really kind of discovered and understood um, different things. And so I move or transition over, I would say a period of a year. Um, you know, it's always been there, like England in the back. Um, I think like, you know, starting senior high school, I was already kind of diverging from, from the path, I suppose. And then college really solidified that path. And, uh, you know, being a fan of like Spock and logic and all that stuff built up to that moment. Mm -hmm. uh, but what was the, the final capstone, I think, was, you know, we have this idea of separation of church and state, right? And I remember specifically, um, you know, going home from college, going to church with the, with the family. And at one point, literally, the priest was recommending who, to, who for me to vote, <laughs> which I talked to my dad about. He's like, that's what they're, you know, they have to kind of do that. And I was like, no, that's not you know, separation of church and statement, like, why are you influencing my uh, voting process? Which I suppose everybody's, you know, in one way or another, trying to affect somebody else on how to vote. But I really, you know, like, that's the last mark, like, that, that pushed me over the edge. And, and then I was like, no, this is, you can't, you know, blend the two, and you shouldn't try to do that. But from a bigger like macroeconomic sense, I understand how this, you know, they, they've been doing that for eons. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I listened to George Carlin. I was a big fan of George Carlin. He's, he's, you know, big atheist. And then I read, I think, what did I read? Um, I think I was exposed to some other atheist concept and then was reading about it. And then it's really the least, um, how would I say it? The least pressure as far as human beings put on other human beings uh, and a, the more freeing that I found it to be. So I thought that was like, yeah. But to this day, I'm still what I call a closet atheist, right? Like other than the, like my close friends, my buddies that I talk to, maybe some of my coworkers or, you know, the, the podcast listeners and then um, stuff like that. I don't go around advocating or trying to commercialize or you know, clearly define that stuff. It's just, um, you know, unless someone asks about it. But yeah, uh, like to my parents, especially to like my parents and family, they, they just think, you know, I'm like, um, uh, what do you call those lost sheep kind of person, you know, someone who just stopped believing, but not, you know, 180 degree degrees like atheist. 
So mm-hmm. I don't think I don't think they would even enjoy the concept or allow it. So it's not a <laughs> it's not something I bring up in my uh, you know Thanksgiving family and all that jazz. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so it's a pretty you're pretty strong in your conviction. Yeah, I think it was a clear decisions around my early years, and I haven't found like, you know, anything to negate or counteract or pull me back. Like, there's nothing for me to, you know, reverse my decision, so to speak, uh, which I'm open to. But it's just like, you know, nothing that I found uh, interesting anywhere else that I'm just like, okay, cool. But no, I'm, I think. Religion free is better than than picking and choosing one. Um, so, yeah. So, um, so it was a it was a disagreement with the the Roman Catholic Church in in, in the sense that the priest was, um, you know, telling affecting political. Yeah. Yeah, but that translated itself to the belief that. You know, there's no divinity or... or uh... No, no, no. That was, just, that was just the last straw. There's huge amount of, like, you know... <laughs> okay, so you were already doubting it, and then that yeah. gave, gave you the yeah. permission to leave that organized structure and... Correct. Or just like... deny it. Uh, or, yeah, deny that... Not deny it, just don't accept it. Um, so it's, it's not that incident. But there's huge amount of, like, things I've read, things I grew up on, things I listened to that affected my thinking that way and then I stopped you know and that was the last mark that I remember but there's a huge amount of stuff that that have impacted me so that I steer a certain way and mm-hmm. uh, allow me to kind of you know use logic to move out of um, of what uh what I used to be as a Roman like practicing Roman Catholic mm-hmm. yeah um is there anything other than what you know what you described that that led you in that direction you you mentioned books and stuff but was there anything else no just just i guess uh general information and things i've gathered you know um i don't know if you know about this uh, i forgot what they call themselves uh it's kind of a joke but it also kind of one of the northern european countries um made a um made a fake religion that came and become like a running joke. Is it the uh, flying spaghetti monster? Correct. Uh, so whoever made that, I think it was around the same time that I was in college. So of course that, you know, boosted my idea. And then I was like, you know, reading into it and all that stuff. And I was like, yeah. Um, also, I think I remember taking world history class. I don't remember much from it. I never worked so hard in my life for a B minus uh, ever, <laughs> but, uh, it was so unfair because it was a one-on-one class and I did so much homework and then I got a B minus and I was like, I don't understand. But then uh, I remember the Epic of Gilgamesh was taught in that. And it's just a lot of things click into place. Like it just, it just pile on one another where I'm like, okay, that makes more sense. Um, so just kind of made a decision for myself, really. It's not like, um, you know, it's not like friends or anything like that. So I'm not sure if you were answer your question or you were trying to figure something else out uh no no i just wanted your wanted your take on it um okay uh i guess to wrap things up um 
you know, you and I met in uh, Toastmasters, and then we, uh, or I guess it was more your, it was your idea to have a podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, so how do you think things are going so far with the podcast, and, and where would you like to take it going forward? I think th- things are going well. Um, you know, I just found your perspective on things very different than everyone else. And so I think it's worth it to explore certain topics. And, you know, I was hoping that your introspection expand out, but that's fine because your introspection is very, (laughs) you know, uh, central around you and your perspective of the world. And I think my take on the world is, you know, if there is such a thing as introspection, uh, I'm not sure if that word exists, but it's more like how, how human beings um, is going to keep, you know, how how race of being is going to keep evolving and surviving and all that stuff, going to space. Um, I'm very curious, you know, about that stuff. And so that's that's my take on it. And so as a podcast, like, team, I think it works out really well. Um, I originally... You know, it's just multi, multi, everything I do, I try to do multi-purpose. So it's like killing two birds with one stone. And it was just, it's also, you know, developing listening skills or developing communication skills, learning about podcasting, uh, mostly Photoshop and Adobe Premiere, like video editing is also something I was trying to learn, but without like a project or without like a way of pushing me, uh, I wouldn't have done it. And so this podcasts kind of serve some of that purpose as well right and of course i enjoy speaking with you so that's kind of help i hope that we can make like my goal is very um uh what you call it step by step so to speak and so i hope that um we get to like you know episode 30 we get to episode 50 we get to episode 100 and just keep kind of growing uh to to this format um and just see where it goes from here. So it's basically a project to kind of fulfill some of that stuff I want to acquire as a skill set, but uh, also kind of enjoy. Um, and so far, it's good. It's not so much homework like Toastmaster. Because <laughs> sometimes I feel like I'm doing so much work for Toastmaster that I get burnt out. Um, but it's also interesting to kind of just uh, think out some of the problems we have as as humans uh, or just diverge or you know bare minimum research into certain things because we're not (laughs) i'm not uh, an expert and it's worth i think it's worth it to uh, think out or theorize out some of this so that you know how to formulate your own thoughts versus like you you know what most people do which is i also do it where I, i look up information to learn how to you know approach a subject um, and then talking with you or debating with you allow me to make it my own, not just, you know, digesting and then spitting back out stuff I have read, which I think majority of human beings do that. <laughs> they just look for information to agree with themselves. And that's, that's very easy and attractive to do. It's very difficult to do, very difficult to do the reverse. Um, yeah, that's you know. co- confirmation bias. Correct. Like, how do you get away from that when you just, you know, look up stuff that's, especially with now the technology we have is algorithm based. It's just going to show you all that stuff because Google probably knows me and not probably Google knows me better than I know myself. Right. And so that's 
that's my fear. Like, how do I break the bubble of my own stuff without, um, you know, and have a healthy like discussion? That's very rare and hard to do, uh, even with coworker or friends, right? Like that's, that's with you, it's a different kind of friendship. It's uh, you know, Toastmaster professional. It's really unique. Uh, I don't know if outside of work you can have a work relationship with someone else um, unless you you know co-author a book together or something or cook on a TV show or something. It's very different, and podcasting allow that uh, as an environment to, to 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 exist. And so yeah, I think it's worth it to keep going. And my 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 hope is we get to episode 100 and um, you know make this podcast unique enough and which we started <laughs> in the last episode where people tune in for that um and that would be amazing so yeah yeah i i agree i'm i'm with you and uh i enjoyed talking to you as well and and uh, thank you very much for allowing me to interview you today yeah thank you um i'm gonna re-listen to some of the question and then see if i can spin it back on you for uh, for next episode <laughs> I, well, I think the key is to come up with a, you know, some core questions and then based on my answers, you know, come up with follow-up questions uh, on the fly. Yeah. That's basically what, what I was doing. Awesome. <laughs> Thank you. All right. I guess that's it. All right. Peace out, listeners. Peace. Bye-bye. Hello, listeners. This is George with the Epic Meta Podcast. Thank you very much for listening. Did you know that you can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and YouTube? You probably knew that one of those was the case, but the other ones are the case as well. Please be sure to click the like button if that's in accord with your reality. You can also share our podcast with your friends, give us a five-star rating, and all of that. Please also uh, give us your comments. be very interested to read them. But more importantly than all of that, just continue to listen to the show. And as Tang would say, be good and be well until we meet again. <laughs>